Uh, any rate, the, I think the study sheet that you had for this week was uh, uh, went down through about verse 24 of chapter 31 in Genesis. But I would like to, uh, if possible today, I'd like to go further than that. Uh, I'm trying to avoid getting completely bogged down. Uh, and uh, so I kind of changed my plan and decided that I'd try to do up through verse 32 today. Uh, and then we'll pick it up with 33 next week and go down through 42. I think I, I ha- that's what I have on the study sheet. So the study sheet I gave you last week actually didn't cover everything that I hope that we will cover today, but my apologies for that. But it's one of the uh, privileges of power is you get to change the plans and not let anybody know. I actually thought about sending out an email yesterday and telling everybody, and I thought, I'll just let them find out. (laughs) Uh, So, at any rate, today's passage is Genesis 31, verses 17 through 32. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first... uh, uh, first 16 verses or so of chapter 31. So, uh, to set the context, what do you remember that we talked about last week? Okay. Over the years It's time to go back home. And, uh, his employment situation has not always been ideal for the last 20 years. He's had his wages changed on him a number of times, uh, and that's not going up. <laughs> uh, it was usually going down or something. So, what else? Okay, yeah. We'll talk more about that today. He, he made sure that... that uh, that Jacob, when he leaves, is going to leave actually a very wealthy man. So. Okay. When he talks, when he has his little conference out in the field with Jacob, uh, with Le- uh, Rachel and Leah, excuse me, he has his conference with Rachel and Leah. Uh, they make it clear that uh, that uh, any affection or ties between them and their father Laban and their family have pretty well been breached by this point. They said we. Uh, he said he he regards us as foreigners, and he said they said we have no portion or inheritance uh, in our father's house. So uh, they pretty much uh, were ready to move on. <laughs> what else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he really is, uh, God is stressing, I'm in a personal relationship uh, with you, Jacob. This is a personal thing between you and I. So, yeah, that's very important. This is the God of Bethel. This is that he has encountered and told him to go back home. The God who, with whom he had made a vow and set up a memorial. And uh, so this is, uh, this is actually the completion of, or the fulfillment of God's promises that God <clears throat> that God made to 
Jacob at Bethel. What else? Okay. Okay. What do you think? You think it was at the end? I had a excuse me, can you say it again? Right. Yes, it could. It could be a reference to uh, very recently. In fact, yes. Uh huh. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Like I said, there are several different viewpoints on that, uh, as Gary pointed out. Did anybody else have? I suggested that I think it came at the end. That's what Gary thought. Does anybody feel like it might have come at the beginning or? Anybody have any thoughts on that? <laughs> okay. Anything else that stood out to you from last week's lesson? We drew some application uh, there at the end when Rachel and Leah talked about having no portion with Laban. Uh, they, they have now thrown in their lot uh, with Jacob, they've thrown in their lot with the man of God. Although at this point, he doesn't look very much like a man of God. He is, he is the man who represents the life of faith. He represents the promise. He represents the covenant. And when Rachel and Leah threw in their lot with him, when they married him and, and uh, attached their fortunes and their futures to this man of promise, they no longer had a portion or inheritance in Laban. And uh, we talked about how that's true with us when we, when we give our allegiance to the Lord, when we choose to walk by faith, then we no longer have a portion. We no longer have an inheritance in this world. Sometimes we live like we do, don't we? <laughs> but we really, we really don't. Yes, Gary? One of the and I'm just wondering if that was uh, from the viewpoint of what they could have had, because it seems like he's still a pretty rich man. Later, even not impoverished, but when he comes after, I see that later. He still has quite a bit of power. Uh, yeah, he does. Uh, I, I think. Uh, the, the passage is clear. There has been some transference of wealth. I, I, like you, I don't, I, I don't envision Laban as completely impoverished. And to be honest with you, I don't think the Lord would have done that to Laban. So I don't see him as impoverished. But I think what the sons are looking at there is what Laban had at the end of 14 years uh, of Jacob's service as compared to what he has at the end of, of, of 20 years. And I, and I think he, I think there has been some diminishing. There's been clearly been some diminishing of Jacob or of Laban's power. But like you, I don't think the guy's uh, the guy's destitute. He seems yeah, he does obviously as, as you mentioned today we'll see he's still got some clout. So uh, also looking at what Yeah. And anytime we start comparing ourselves with others, we look pretty. You know, we don't look really good ourselves, do we? We start comparing, comparing what we've got with what others got, and we usually end up discontent. So, yeah, Rick. Okay. And how was that? 
Okay, so that was one reason why he diminished was his own lifestyle. He apparently consumed quite rapidly uh, the, the, the wealth that he did have. So he, that was one reason. What was the other reason why he diminished? We actually gave two reasons. It's a, oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, what we see is that when Laban's attitude towards Jacob changes, and it changes from friendliness to hostility, then that whole promise that God has given to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants that I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, that comes into effect, that comes into play here. And to some degree, I think because Laban is operating in a hostile manner towards Jacob, uh, God is dealing with him accordingly, uh, according to his promises. Anything else? That's good. You remember a lot of things from last week. That's good. Well, let's pick it up then in verse uh, 17 and read down through verse 32. It says, Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all of his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Paden Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to share his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and with timbrel and with lyre and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now, you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Okay, We'll stop there, kind of leave the story hanging in suspense as to what's going to happen. But if you've read ahead, you know. Uh, but uh, as we pick up the story in verse 17, 
we see Jacob, it says he arose and he put his children and his wives on camels and then he, he drives away all his uh, his uh his possessions, etc., and he heads off for for Canaan, for the land of Canaan, and for his father's uh, house, for Isaac's house. Uh, one of the things that it seems like the author is pointing out here when he says Jacob arose, the word he used there, he arose, uh, probably is a referral back to the command that he received from the Lord. Remember when last week when we looked at the at uh, the dialogue that Jacob had with his wives. Uh, he mentions or he discusses the dream that God had given him. And in the dream, he recounts how God had told him to arise and go back to his relatives and to his homeland. And uh, so it, it, it seems here that the, what the author is trying to point out to us is that Jacob is acting in obedience to God. That God has told him to go back. And so he is, in fact, arising and he is going back. And, and of course, we, we know that that uh, when he left, uh, when he left Canaan, when he left his father's house, he left as a fugitive. He got to Bethel, and the Lord spoke to him, and uh, and and gave him the promises that he would be with him, and that he would bring him back safely, uh, and that sort of thing. This, of course, now is the completion of his time in Haran. God has allowed him to have 20 years in Haran. And I don't know what all God, and we talked about this before, I don't know what all God had in mind for Jacob in Haran and why he had him there for 20 years, but it was a very long time. And and one of the things we have to struggle with, and we have wrestled with this as we've gone through the story of Jacob, is that is that oftentimes we see in the life of Jacob that he's doing God's business or he's he's accomplishing God's purposes but he's doing it through the arm of flesh. He's doing it by, by the means or the methods of man. Okay? And, and, and it'd be easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, it doesn't matter how we do God's business as long as it gets done. Okay? And if we look at Jacob, we see God blessing him, and we see God's with him, and we see God protecting him, and we see he steals the birthright and he gets to keep it, and you know, and he manipulates, or the, uh, the uh, excuse me, the blessing, he manipulates to get the birthright and he gets to keep it. And so, you know, it would be easy for us to conclude if we just looked at all that, that, well, as long as you do what ultimately what God wants done, as long as you, you ultimately do God's business, it really doesn't matter how you do it. But when we think that way, we're overlooking 20 years in Haran. <laughs> we're overlooking 20 years in Peyton Arab. And there were a lot of good things that happened in Jacob's life in that 20-year period of time. But there was also, uh, very clearly, a great deal of struggle and a great deal of conflict in his life. So we're coming to the end of that period of time and God is now going to finish the things that he promised that he would do when he encountered uh, uh, Jacob, when he met Jacob there at Bethel. God is now going to accomplish those things, but let's not overlook what these last 20 years have been like. He has basically been an indentured servant. He's been a slave for the last 20 years. And, uh, and now, even as he leaves, and even as he leaves under the command of God, he leaves with a threat on his life and on his family. We talked a little bit about that last week, and we'll talk about it some more this week. So, yeah. He was obedient and sneaking off, or, I mean, God told him to leave, but... 
practicing. It looked like God would have covered him anyway. God appeared to Laban, so if he'd just gone in and talked to Laban, God that, that's a question we do want to address. Uh, so uh, don't let me get out of here today without talking about that, but you're getting ahead of me. So, uh, But that is a question. Should he have snuck off? But, but before we get to that point, we do we do see that this whole this whole thing about his leaving Haran or leaving Paden Aram, uh, Haran is the city. Paden Aram is uh, kind of the whole region there from uh, the Euphrates River north up to Haran. So maybe I should draw a little map up here to kind of help you visualize things because uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking geography here a little bit today. So. Um, uh, Okay, so another one of my classic well-drawn maps here, okay. We'll remember the land of Canaan. We have the Mediterranean over here. Okay, that's ocean. You visualize that. And we have uh, the Dead Sea down here. We have the Jordan River comes up. Then we have what is called this, what we refer to as the Sea of Galilee up here. Uh, uh, Jacob and Abraham, uh, although they were given promise this whole, uh, excuse me, Abraham and Isaac, even though they were promised this whole land of Canaan, they spend most of their time down in the southern part of Canaan and Beersheba's down here, etc. And so this is probably where Isaac is living during this whole 20 year period that Jacob is gone. OK, up here uh, you have uh, you have the Euphrates rivers come down here. Euphrates River comes down here and goes over into what is now current day Iraq, Iraq. And you have Heron up here. And uh, this is uh, this is not a very uh, uh, the scale here is distorted, but and and this whole area here would be paid in Aram. Um, okay, so that's that whole region right in there. Okay, uh, and so uh, sometimes uh, Abraham's family is referred to as being from Haran, and sometimes they're referred to as being from paid in Aram. Okay. And and uh, Peyton Aram would be more the area that Jacob is referred to as being in because he's he's a nomad. He's a sheep herder. And so they, they don't just stay around the city. They they go through this whole region here. OK, so Jacob is now he's going to leave uh, Peyton Aram. But but as we read the story, we see there's a real urgency to his to his departure. What, what's the urgency that's involved in his departure? He doesn't feel safe. Why not? Okay. His father-in-law's attitude has changed. Laban is no longer friendly to him. And as we pointed out last week, you know, with friends like Laban, who needs enemies, right? (laughs) When Laban was his friend, or at least acted friendly towards him, he still changed his wages ten times and tricked him and manipulated him and took advantage of him and that sort of thing. And that's when he was a friend. Okay. Now he's hostile towards him. Or at least not friendly, no longer friendly towards him. And Jacob takes that as a threat. And as we read here in the passage today, he actually thought that once he told Laban that he was going to leave, what did he think Laban would do? Take his wives how? By force. force. Okay. So, excuse me. Also 
Yes, yes. So it wasn't just Laban, it was his whole family. Yeah, with the exception, of course, of, of, uh, of Jacob's wives. Yes, his whole family was... Uh, so the whole, the whole situation was pretty tense. And, and Jacob's assessment of Laban is that this is a guy who, when, he's on, when you're friends with him, it's, you can get along, okay. But when you're not his friend, this is a guy who could be prone to violence. Okay? And as the story unfolds, we see that's a very accurate assessment on Jacob's part. So, so here he has now two wives, two concubines, 11 or 12 children or more, because it, we only list one a daughter and there may have been more daughters. So he has 11 or 12 children or more. Okay. He has herds of or flocks of sheep and flocks of goats and he has donkeys and he has camels and he has male servants and he has female servants. Now, you thought when you pack to go on vacation, it's a chore, right? How do you transport a group like that, an entourage like that, if you will, and all the accoutrements, all the, the many tents and, and everything that has to, that's, that's involved in supporting a household like this? How do, you, how do you pack up and sneak out in the middle of the night? Okay, which is clearly what Jacob does. Now, we will address here in a moment whether or not he should have, but that's the way Jacob is thinking because Jacob still oftentimes thinks in terms first of what do I need to do and, and what's important for me and how do I need to act without asking the first question, which he should ask is, how is God going to do this? So he's really trying to figure out how he's going to do it. And, and, uh, and he's figuring he's got to sneak out. Okay. How does he do it? How does he pull this off? Well, this I was thinking too, maybe Jacob has seemingly been in his interactions with others and he knows kind of what's coming if he doesn't. Oh, yeah, I, I have no doubt Jacob knew this guy was dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I have no doubt he knew the guy was dangerous. And, and he feels like he's got to get out of it. But how does, he, how does he pull it off? Maybe we can go back to the previous chapter and the first verse that he wants to say. He took three days' journey between himself and Jacob. He took the rest of the flock. So maybe there actually was three days. Okay. Uh, that is one, one part of the explanation. There's probably a three-day separation there. And I know we, we had some different opinions here in the class about who, who was actually separated by three days. I think my personal opinion is the flocks were separated, uh, that, that Laban had some flocks that were separated. There were some that Jacob was caring for and some that his sons were caring for and the ones that his sons were caring for and he were separated three days from Jacob. That's how I understand that. That gives him a three-day margin, but that still doesn't explain how does he get away. Okay, okay. Uh, us city slickers living in the 21st century, we just read right by that and we don't notice that, that he went off to shear the sheep. That's not an afternoon project, okay? And this, is a, this is an endeavor uh, that uh, they would engage in, in in April and May of, the, uh, of every year. It's kind of an annual event. And it would be like the harvest for a, for a, uh, for a farmer growing crops, okay? This is... This is the yearly payoff. This is the annual payoff when you shear the sheep, okay? And so it was a massive project, just like the harvest would be as, as we think of today with, our, uh, with a, with a uh, 
a grain farmer. Uh, it's a you know it's a major uh, you know s- several week long project if you have a lot of flocks uh, to to shear all these and it's also a very festive time so so there would be a great deal of celebration so they'd work hard all day and they'd party hard all night and they'd get all the family together and they would celebrate because this is this is the big payoff for all of our year's work okay so when it says that Laban went to shear his flocks. He's obviously it's implying that he's gone away from home. He's gone out to the fields. He's out there for a period of time. And presumably most, if not all, of his family is with him because it is this great festival time, this great festive celebration of the, of the payoff for the year. So they're working hard. They're away from home. They're celebrating. And obviously Jacob really doesn't have to worry about Laban here for a few days because he's off shearing the flock. Okay? Now, the question is, might pop in your mind, well, you know, why isn't Jacob doing the same thing? Well, that's exactly what Laban would be assuming, that this is also Jacob's time to be shearing his flock. So he would be assuming that Jacob is busy doing all of that, when in fact Jacob has other things uh, that he's occupying himself with. Okay? So it is, in fact the time of the shearing of the flocks, and Laban is off doing that. And this provides two opportunities. One opportunity for Rachel to do what? To steal the teraphim, to steal the household idols, which she does there in verse 19. And then, of course, in verse 20, it points out that this is how Jacob then manages to, uh, to sneak away without Laban uh, being aware that he's doing it. Okay. Now, one of the things that's interesting there, well, before I get to that, let's just stop and talk about these teraphim for a minute, these household idols, okay? Uh, these, uh, these household, and incidentally, I think, this is the, I think this is the first time in Scripture that we actually encounter idolatry being mentioned, as I recall. But, but at any rate, uh, these, these teraphim were, uh, they were indeed kind of your, your local family gods, okay? They were your household gods as it translates it here in the New American, okay? Uh, they could vary in size from, from virtually life size, okay, to uh, some that are obviously much, much smaller as is clear in this case when we get on into the story next week and we'll see that uh, see how Rachel has concealed them. Uh, it's obvious that they're considerably smaller, okay? So they are they are small. They're, they're, they typically were made out either out of precious metals or they were carved out of wood. Uh, they were human-like in their form. Okay? Uh, and uh, it's a little ambiguous. Some things about the teraphim are a little ambiguous. Uh, but it does, it does seem that uh, at least uh, some uh, students of, of that particular time in history it, it see, uh, indicate that it seems that the teraphim are somehow associated with really designating who is the legal heir of the estate. So in other words, the teraphim are an heirloom. They are passed down from one generation to the other. And they are passed uh, from, the, from the legal heir of the estate 
to the next legal heir of the estate. So typically in a, in a, in a, a primogeniture count, culture like uh, was predominant in, in those days, they would be passed from the firstborn to the firstborn to the firstborn. Okay? So, uh, so they had a great deal of significance in that respect. They, they were typically, if they were made from precious metals, they were valuable. Uh, they had tremendous cultural and family significance because they were an heirloom and because they really designated who was the heir of the estate, who really, you know, who really is going to be the next patriarch. So they really represented a person's power and influence within the, within the patriarchy. Um, and of course, as we go through scripture, we see that they were invariably associated with some form of divination or idolatry. Okay, so so they have cultural significance, they have family significance, they have religious significance. All of this is wrapped up in them, which explains why uh, Laban is a little upset when he comes home to consult his his uh, his uh, uh, teraphim, and they're not there on the on the mantle where he left them. And uh, so so Rachel takes the opportunity here. To abscond with these things. Now, then, yes, you had it. Yeah, I'm speculating here that uh, maybe Terpen might have something to do with fertility. There is that possibility, yes. Yeah, uh, and, and that brings up our next question. Why did Rachel take the teraphim? And some commentators have suggested that, uh, that they have some association with fertility and maybe she took them uh, because uh, she, was needing, she was still wanting to have more children. Uh, there are other explanations for why Rachel took them. She could have taken them because remember last, in last week's lesson, she had felt like she had in some ways been robbed of of the bridal price or whatever, you know, my my father, uh, you know, he, he got this great bridal price for me and he has consumed it all and we didn't get anything. We have no portion. We have no inheritance. And so it's possible that this was her way to just grab a little bit on the way out the door to make sure that she doesn't go away empty handed. Uh, uh, possibly. Uh, and, and I personally think uh, this is perhaps part of the explanation is I think she still felt some religious connection to these things. Now, she is beginning at this point to really identify with Jacob and with Jacob's God and to identify with the covenant and with the promise. But this doesn't preclude the possibility that in the back of her mind, she still attaches some significance and some power to these household idols that she's grown up around and she's been accustomed to consulting them. And so that's just war that's just woven into the warp and woof of her existence and of her culture. And so there is quite I think quite possibly a little bit of of still that residual idolatry in her heart and so she takes them for that reason. We really don't know. It doesn't tell us why Rachel takes the teraphim. However, they do create problems. And we'll see at least twice in the next chapter or two, uh, we'll see that these teraphim create problems for Jacob. One in the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, obviously, the most obvious problem is they've been stolen and Laban wants them back. Okay. Uh, so she steals them. Now, it is interesting in verse 19, it says, um, uh, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's and... Jacob deceived. Actually, the word there is the same word that it used in verse 19 for stole 
in reference to the teraphim. That's why when I read it, I put the word stole in there. Uh, New American translates it deceived, which gives you really more kind of the sense of what's going on. But, but when, you, when you translate the word there deceived, you miss the obvious connection that the narrator intended to make. It's obvious that the narrator is trying to make a connection between what Rachel did and what Laban did because he's using the same Hebrew word. And he puts notice the conjunction, verse 20 there, the conjunction at the beginning, the word and. Okay. So he says, so he says, Rachel stole the teraphim and, La- and Jacob stole Laban's heart. Okay. Actually, that's, uh, that's a more literal translation there of the, of the Hebrew phrase that's involved there is the idea of stealing the heart. Now, uh, so what's being communicated there, and we have some other places in Scripture where this idea of stealing the heart is involved. Uh, for example, uh, when, the, when the kingdom of Israel is divided into two nations, Judah and Israel, and he talks about uh, the story of Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam and how, uh, and how Jeroboam uh, manipulated the situation and, and, and uh, developed his own kind of religion up north in order... Uh, in order to steal away the hearts of the people. Okay, the idea of stealing the heart is to render somebody incapable of making rational, intelligent, appropriate choices. Okay, and so, so, so what what happens with with Israel when when their hearts are uh, when their hearts are stolen away there by Jeroboam is is by creating this confusion between between Jerusalem and uh, and the places of worship in Israel, by creating that division, Israel's ability to judge wisely and act appropriately is impeded, and they end up, of course, falling into idolatry. Uh, so the idea here is that by his deception, by his secrecy, he has rendered Laban unable to act appropriately. Okay, now, from Laban's perspective, he's thinking, well, by Jacob's deception, I've been unable to grab what was mine. Okay, but really what's at stake here is that Jacob, by his deception, has rendered Laban unable to do the right thing. Okay, the right thing was to let Jacob go. To let him do it, let him do it willingly and do it gladly, and to send him off as he pretends he would have done, which of course we know he wouldn't. Okay, so so that's the idea, and and so it, it seems by the way the passage is structured here and the way the narrator tells the story, I think it uh, it answers Mike's question was should. Jacob have done what he did. And, and I think quite clearly the narrator's putting a very negative spin on what Jacob did. Okay. Well, the first thing we go, we say is, well, gee, I mean, his life was in danger. The life of his family was in danger. All of his wealth was in danger. Was he not justified in sneaking away? You're shaking your head no there. Okay. What was his promise from God? Okay. Well, that's not very comforting. Sometimes he okays it. <laughs> but actually, God had told him, clear back at Bethel, that he would watch over him, that he would take care of him. So he does have a promise from God. 
So we can all understand Jacob's actions, right? We can sympathize with his actions, but it doesn't make it right. Okay? And it becomes very clear as the story unfolds that God fully intended to protect Jacob. And if God could protect Jacob in the hills of Gilead, could he not have protected him on the flats and on the plains of Padanera? Certainly he could have. And I, there's, I think there's no doubt that he would have. Okay. So, but, but Laban, Jacob, of course, isn't thinking this way. He's just thinking, you know, I got this crazy, you know, half-cooked, you know, half-crazy father-in-law and there's no telling what he's going to do and I just got to get out of here and I, and, I, and I need to sneak away. So he sneaks away. Okay. Well, by his sneaking away, he just makes matters really worse as far as his relationship with his father-in-law, if that's possible. Okay. Because that just gives Laban uh, more fuel for the fire. Okay. Before you pointed that out, even the reason he's obeying God to leave, but there are times when you don't obey God in a way that hurts other people. I mean, it's kind of like God wants you to change partnerships or change an office, you know, and you feel led to do that. You do it in a way that's fair to everyone. You don't just take off. Breach your contracts. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't honor God. Yeah, yeah. And so it really does have a practical application. We, and we see it all the time. Uh, I, think, I think about this, and I've thought about this several times in, in the whole story of Jacob, that, that oftentimes in the church we see things that we think God wants us to do, but then we, then we, then we do them in sinful ways. You know? and, and God is not honored and He's not pleased by that. So there's obedience and then there's obedience. <laughs> there's, there's obedience where we employ the arm of flesh, and, and that's really half-hearted obedience. And then there's obedience where we walk by faith. And I think that's what God really wants of us. Okay? So we want to honor Him in, in, in our obedience. We want to honor Him in the way, ways that we do it so that we uh, treat other people properly and we treat other people right. Okay? Uh, it, had He done it another way, had He gone to Laban, there's no telling, of course, exactly what Laban would have done, but it is clear, I think, what God would have done. So there was no peril to him. But Jacob is still learning this lesson, that there is no peril to him. He'll come up face to face with it here in the next chapter, when finally when he gets to the river Jabbok, uh, which we'll talk about later. Uh, incidentally, in, in our little map here, uh, the, the region of the Gilead uh, is really pretty much, uh, it's bounded by two rivers, a river that uh, flows into uh, the north of the uh, Jordan River, right here below the Sea of Galilee, and another river that flows into the middle of the Dead Sea. Okay, okay, and, and so this is pretty much the, the region it's referring to. Gilead later in Scripture comes to refer to this southern region, but at this point in the story, it refers to this whole Transjordan area. The Transjordan is the area across the river from the Promised Land. Okay, across the Jordan River. So this whole Jordan, uh, Transjordan River, is referred to as the hill country of Gilead, or this mountainous, forested country of Gilead. And there's another river that kind of dissects through the middle of it and flows into the Jordan River, called the River Jabbok. And we'll get to there in chapter 32. That is, of course, a major turning point in the life of Jacob. Uh, but at any rate. So, so he has this, uh, this urgency and he, he packs up all his belongings and he, and he heads off and it says he crosses the Euphrates River and he sets his face toward Gilead. Okay. Now, 
I just kind of in my mind's eye yesterday as I was studying and preparing for the lesson today, I just kind of put myself there at the Euphrates River and, and just kind of thought back 20 years and thought about how Jacob had come across that river 20 years earlier. If you had been there standing on the banks of the Euphrates River 20 years earlier, what would you have seen? Okay, one guy all by himself with nothing. Basically sent away pretty much empty-handed. Okay, crossing the river headed north. And it struck me, if we had taken a snapshot of Jacob's life as he was crossing the Euphrates River going north, and we posted that up here on our wall and we said, this is Jacob. It really wouldn't tell us the whole story of Jacob, would it? There's a whole lot more to Jacob and to this whole thing of God and Jacob than just a snapshot of him crossing the Euphrates River headed north. But if we had waited there at the Euphrates River until we see him coming south 20 years later, what do we now see? A whole clan. I mean, just think about it, okay? Two wives, two concubines, a dozen or more children. How many sheep? and goats and, and camels and donkeys and maidservants and female servants and, and tents and you know, all the equipment and accoutrements or whatever, you know, all of this stuff coming. You, know, you just wonder, how did they even get across the river? You know, I don't know if they, if they had bridges back then or if they had to ford across. I don't know. But the women and the children, of course, were riding camels. And, and uh, that's so he can expedite things, keep things moving fast. He's obviously trying to get out of there as quickly as he can. But, but it's, it's such a contrast. And as I thought about that, I thought if I had been there the first time he crossed the Euphrates River and, and watched as he crossed... And, and I took that snapshot and, and I walked away with that as my impression of Jacob. I would have a pretty distorted picture of Jacob, wouldn't I? And it struck me that, that it behooves us when we look at others or even when we look at our own lives, not to judge our lives based on a snapshot of, snapshot of one point in time. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? We look at somebody's life, we take a snapshot of their life, or we take a snapshot of our life at one point in time, and we go, well, that's, that's what that person is. That's what that person's like. But, but really what we need to do is we just need to wait until we can see the whole panoramic view. And what a different picture we'll get of Jacob if we'll just wait long enough to get the whole panoramic view there are three decisive journeys in the life of Jacob. His first decisive journey was what? 
Going north. <laughs> Leaving home, going to Haran. This is his second decisive journey. Going back home. He'll have another decisive journey. What is that? Going to Egypt. Okay. And, and so if we'll just kind of back off and wait to assess the life of Jacob until we've seen the whole panorama, we'll have a much better understanding of the man Jacob and we'll have a much better understanding of his God. Won't we? And that's true in our... That's also true in, in how we look at others and how we evaluate other people's lives. To be careful not to just take a snapshot of when they're crossing the Euphrates River going north. Because that's not a very complimentary picture. But if we wait until we see him coming back, then that certainly broadens our perspective. But even at that point, there's more to see. Like when he crosses the river Jabbok. But at any rate, uh, so he's coming south. Now, I want to point out to you something. Uh, pick it up in verse... Um, in verse 18, it says, And he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered and paid in Aram. And then down to verse 21, So he fled with all that he had. What do you see the narrator stressing there? Pardon? Okay, he fled. How much he accumulated. So he's fleeing, yes, but he's fleeing with all this stuff. But I want you to notice how it says it. All his livestock, all his property, which he had gathered, his acquired livestock, which he had gathered and paid an errand. And then in verse 21, so he fled with all he had. And so there's a tremendous emphasis on all this is now Jacob's. So as, we're, so as we're sitting there in our little observation booth at the Euphrates River and we see him coming south, he's coming south with all of his possessions. Why does the narrator stress so emphatically that all this stuff belongs to Jacob? Okay, it's stuff he acquired, it's stuff he gathered, it was his, it belonged to him. And this becomes critical because when Laban catches up to him, as we'll see next week, Laban asserts that it all belongs to him. He tells, he tells Jacob to look at everything around him. He says, everything you see belongs to me. So Laban actually thinks all of this belongs to him. But his daughters, the, the servants... The sheep, the goats, the camels, he considers it all his own. And the narrator is making quite clear to us it is not Laban's. It is Jacob's because God has given it to Jacob and it belongs to Jacob. Okay? Well, so he flees. He sets his face towards the mountain, uh, the hill country of Gilead, this very mountainous and forested area. And, and clearly, he's, I mean, this is not his destination. His destination is down here, right? His destination is down here around Beersheba where Daddy is, okay? Why is he so determined to get to the hill country of Gilead? Because he's 
more calm. It's more away. When you're in the hills, they're not going to follow you. Okay? It's, there's more safety there. He's got the mountains and the hills and the forests and stuff. He can hide, okay? That's the plan. Does it work? No, because Laban catches up to him, doesn't he? And Laban catches up to him and he says, uh, he asks him this series of questions. He says, uh, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and with timbrel and with lyre and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly, for it's in my power to do you harm. So Laban comes up on him, catches up to him uh, after uh, seven or ten days. It's not exactly clear how. Uh, how long? I think probably it's a total of ten days here. But at any rate, he catches up to him and, uh, and he confronts him and he asks him this question. The first thing he says, why did you deceive me and sneak off and carry away my daughters like captives of the sword? Is that accurate? No, it's not accurate. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's only partly true. He did sneak away. But his wives, Jacob's wives, were collaborators, right? They were part of this. They wanted to go. But Laban doesn't know that. Laban just assumes that he's carried his daughters away, that Jacob has carried his daughters away. <laughs> Laban just assumes that because Laban always sees, sees things as favorable to himself. Okay? So, the things that he then says in the, in the following questions that he asks, we should probably understand as mere theater. In other words, he's saying this stuff for the benefit of his, of his daughters. He's saying this because he's trying to impress his daughters and possibly also his kinsmen who are with him. Okay. And so he says, why did you deceive me? He's trying to get their sympathy on his side as opposed to Jacob. He says, why did you deceive me and carry my daughters away and you didn't allow me to send you away with joy and with song and with, with uh, 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 dancing and music and all that sort of stuff and you didn't allow me to kiss them goodbye? Would he have done that? No. <clears throat> we know he wouldn't have. In fact, Rachel and Leah said he regards us as foreigners. There was no affection between them anymore. So he's just he's just kind of playing this all up here. He's just trying to he's just trying to make himself look good. Okay. And uh, but then he and then he then he kind of issues this kind of veiled threat. You know, it's the, this is the this is the case of the the mailed fist in the in the in the velvet glove type of thing, you know. <laughs> this is you know I I can do you harm. The idea there is it's in my power. It's uh some some comments some old commentators like to translate this uh, uh my hand is my God. In other words I can do whatever I want because I'm strong and I'm powerful. And it's interesting that when he says, I could do you harm there, the you is plural. It includes not only Jacob, but Jacob's family. So he's threatening not only Jacob, but Jacob's family. 
But then, of course, he has to admit that God has prohibited him from doing this. But then he says, why did you steal my gods? You know, and at that point, we're just kind of prone to laugh, aren't we? Now, it's no laughing matter to Laban, of course, but it's so ludicrous. And, and we're reminded of the other times in Scripture where God just mocks the idol worshippers. Classic case. The Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? First Samuel? The Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and they take it and they put it in their temple. And what happens to Dagon? He falls on his face in front of the ark. Okay? It's funny. So they, what do they do? They set him back up. Why can't a God get up on his own? Good grief, he's God. Okay? But they set him back up. The next morning they come in and what do they find? Yeah, he's on his face and his arms, is bro- his arms and his head are broken off. <laughs> And at this point, they go, we've got to get this other God out of here. You know, <laughs> this is dangerous. For, you know, and it's just, it's ludicrous. It's hilarious. Well, when the psalmist says they have eyes, but they do not see and they have ears, but they do not hear and they have mouths, but they do not speak and they have hands, but they do not feel. What is God doing? He's just mocking them. He said, come on, people, wake up, look at them. You know, what are you thinking? And so when we see Laban, he's standing there and he's all in a huff and he's all in a bother because Jacob stole his gods. And you go, Laban, how foolish can you be? Can you not see? But he takes it completely seriously. It's really ironic that he listened to God in the dream and yet he's worried about these other gods. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of the nature of polytheism, though. You just kind of pick and choose, and you know. So, so Laban is Laban is totally fixated on this thing, and we look at it and we just laugh, and we think, how can anybody be that stupid? But they're still that stupid, aren't they? I mean, we're, we 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 live in a world that's full of people that look around and they look at the splendor of creation. And the beauty of creation, the marvel of how it all works together. And then they say, oh, it was just an accident. And we just laugh at them. Because it's stupid. It's stupid to look at the human cell. It's folly to look at the human cell and say it was an accident. And they're all hot and bothered about intelligent design. And you go, come on, people, get real. When you walk into your house at night after a day of work, you go, well, I'm glad this thing just fell into place for me so I'd have a place to lay my head. It's just stupidity. But that's the nature of spiritual blindness. And so, so when we see a Laban or when we see an evolutionist, well, although we're inclined to laugh, we should feel pity for them because they are spiritually blind. And that's why they believe these silly things. And that's why Laban can't understand how foolish it is to think that these things are gods and that they can be stolen and carried away on camels. But that's the way Laban thinks. Well, we are out of time, so we'll pick up Jacob's response there and go on in 
to the next 10 or so verses uh, next week.